0: Think about New York, right? How far can you really walk in New York without coming across a public zodiac somewhere? Astrological imagery, they're everywhere. And if you're in Italy, forget about it, right?
1: Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from ArtNet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Here at ArtNet, we typically look to data and hard facts to tell us what to make of the wily, unpredictable art world. But every now and then, it's important to remember that ours is an industry based on unorthodox minds and a reverence for avant-garde expression. So magical thinkers ought to remain a legitimate resource for our team of reporters— To that end, our Artnet News Pro wet paint columnist Annie Armstrong recently spoke with Mickey Pellerano, who has earned himself the nickname the Art Warlock, to discuss the occult's role in the art world and why so many esteemed minds in our industry look in earnest to astrology for guidance. Pellerano is an artist himself, working mainly in drawing and sculpture to express his affinity for ritual symbolism and esotericism. His work has been on view at esteemed spaces such as MoMA, the Serpentine Gallery, the Brooklyn Museum, and the 2019 Venice Biennale. More than that, though, he has also been the art world's go-to astrologer, hosting one-on-one sessions for art world luminaries such as Jenny Hival and Alyssa Bennett from his studio in Brooklyn. Palerano's study of the occult is ongoing, and in this conversation, he asserts his belief that astrology's impact is inextricable from the advancement of humankind, and certainly from the Canon of Art History.
2: Hi, Mickey. Thank you so much for coming on to The Art Angle.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: So I am only a little bit familiar with what you do. I know you to be an artist. I know you to be a member of the occult, or perhaps a medium. I'm not really sure how you would identify yourself.
0: A practitioner of the occult. member of the occult maybe conflates the word occult with cult, which they're actually not. Related. Occult means hidden, right? Obscure, esoteric. And occult would be a sect or an order that sort of worships a particular deity or practices under a certain lineage of some kind. So the occult is a very general term to discuss uh, esoteric, metaphysical topics such as natural philosophy, astrology, Hermetica, alchemy, magic, things like this. Yes. So I describe myself as a practitioner of the occult more of a member of any specific sect or order. My practice is rather broad-ranging, but I would say it originates in uh, hermetic magic, Greco-Egyptian magic into hermeticism in general, which comes to encompass Kabbalah and tarot and astrology and uh, magical traditions that thrived in medieval Persia and Renaissance Italy and things like this.
2: So I'm only familiar with a handful of those terms. What is hermetica, for instance?
0: The hermetic tradition began in Alexandria really as a fusion between Greek philosophy, Hellenistic philosophy, and Egyptian mystery schools and Egyptian spiritual traditions. And those things merged in the Alexandrian age where Platonic thought shifted to Neoplatonic thought that focused on the metaphysical and spiritual notions in plato's teachings and then these merged with the cosmology that derived from the egyptian priestcraft really and so it was a way of understanding the world as a microcosm of a macrocosmic universe of understanding one's personal existence or one's personal identity as a microcosmic factor in an intelligent and alive cosmos that exists outside the individual
2: i see so did you grow up With these beliefs or did you come into them?
0: That's a good question. I was definitely guided in my youth into this because I'm Cuban-American. Both my parents are Cuban immigrants. And there was strong streams or there are still strong streams of Santeria in my family. So ritual and this kind of esoteric ritual was definitely introduced to me in in my youth through the older ladies in my family. And they were kind enough to let me go pyro on their altars and stuff like that and light candles and burn things and (laughs) do all this crazy stuff. And I knew from a young age that I was called to this kind of thing. Astrology was very much embedded in my family as well. We all categorized each other by our signs and would kind of team up, you know, based on our sun signs and stuff like that. And my great aunt, Kuki, was actually good friends with Walter Mercado. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but there's a recent documentary about him, uh, the Spanish-speaking world. He was a very popular astrologer, wonderful figure with these Liberace robes and lots of rings and, you know, uh, spreading love and messages of esoterica, uh, mostly through the Spanish-speaking world, but he's relatively known in the United States as well. So there were streams of occultism in my family for sure. And in my ancestry, my great-grandfather was a high-grade Freemason and a Supreme Court Justice in Cuba, in Havana. So there are streams of mysticism in my family and different magical traditions for sure. And just sort of always had that way of seeing the world and understanding myself and my place in that world.
2: You're also a visual artist. How did you get your start as an artist?
0: I started off as an artist when I was really little. I always loved to draw and I was in Catholic school when I was very little in Miami and my favorite class was this religion class where they would read us these mystical stories and For the first half of the class, and for the second class, we'd have to draw something from them. We'd have to illustrate something of what we had just heard. And I loved to do that. And as I got older and I started studying all these esoteric traditions, they're so poetic and they're full of so much rich symbolism and so much powerful imagery. And you read these things and they just invoke such powerful images in your mind. And I was like, oh my gosh, Like I want to give these things form. I want to give these things a visual representation. So that's one aspect of it. I was very inspired always by these traditions and their imagery. But also symbolism is extremely powerful in these traditions. It's kind of the key element of how magic and occultism really work. There's a vocabulary of symbols whereby the subconscious is able to be accessed and the subconscious is the medium through which the physical body kind of communicates with the celestial body and the celestial realms. So employing symbolism into visual art was a big core of the way that I drew and also in performance art including ritual with visual motifs, but also smells and sounds and things like this that converge to have a powerful magical effect. And I made short films as well. There was always sort of a ritualistic or alchemical element to the way that I worked or still work involving symbol, ritual, and metaphysical meaning.
2: Right. You're certainly not the first one to get a lot of inspiration from the symbolism. My mind went to Genesis briar Peoridge, who worked a lot in the ritual arts and I mean, I guess there was like a lot of satanic tradition in their work. Who else have you looked to for inspiration or who are some of your forebearers?
0: That's a great nod. I was lucky enough to know Genesis for many years since the early 2000s. Most certainly the innovations that Genesis made towards merging magic and art were highly inspirational. Genesis was involved in a group of magicians, artists, occultists in England that extended to Peter Christofferson, who was also in Throbbing Gristle, and Jeff Rushton or John Balance, who were forming the band Coil, and Chris and Cozy also, and David Tibet of Current 93. This whole movement of music was very influential to me. And Kenneth Anger and Marjorie Cameron, and taking it back from there, this bohemian sort of embracing of occultism that happened during their era. And before that, Austin Osmond Spare was a highly important and very influential, even though Austin Spare didn't come to prominence until much after his death. Austin Osmond Spare was a visual artist in the Edwardian era, right? A contemporary of Aleister Crowley and worked all through the 1950s, probably from, I'd say, the 1910s all the way to the 50s. And Sparrow was a brilliant painter, a brilliant artist, and also a very innovative occultist, discovered ways of not only working with spirit contact, but also working with symbol and the importance of symbol in working effective magic and extending the capacities of the mind into these other realms. Actually, the first exhibition on American soil of Austin Spears work just occurred last spring in Chicago. Iceberg Projects, I believe, is the name of the gallery, and the Kinsey Institute participated with them of all these very erotic and intense works by Austin Osmond Spare. Genesis was highly influenced by Spare, as was William Burroughs, and this whole kind of lineage of people. Even before Spare, the Surrealists adopted occultism very very powerfully in what they did you had alchemy being absorbed by Andre Breton and Leonora Carrington and Remedios Varo and Salvador Dali and Max Ernst very much so
2: love Max Ernst yeah
0: <laughs> yeah the cut up method of William S Burroughs and Brian Geisen was a way that they would chop things up and mix up to like disorder the mind right in sort of a rambo sense of derangement of the senses But Max Ernst was actually kind of doing that way back before by cutting up etchings and recombining them. That modern era of surrealism, which was preceded even, I would say, by French decadent literature, absorbing these kind of occult streams into art was really prominent around that time. There's always been a dialogue between magic and the occult and art. It's obviously too extensive to dive into the whole thing, but it wasn't invented by the surrealists it's always been a dialogue magic the occult and art have always kind of drank from the same wellspring
2: yeah out of the box thinkers people that are willing to believe in a little bit of magic i think that that is a big crossover between an artistic mind and a spiritual mind so that makes a lot of sense
0: the transcendence of the mundane the transcendence of the capacities of consciousness and the capacities of human potential and being in touch with the primitive or atavistic centers of the psyche and the mind and the representation of deep symbolic codes and their meanings. This has always been a motif in art as early as I can trace back.
2: You have like a fount of knowledge about this. Did you study this at all or is this all just through your own independent research that you know so far back about spiritualism and in art?
0: Well, I didn't formally study it because this knowledge and information is rejected pretty much by mainstream academia, right? So there isn't too much of an option to study it formally. But it's been a very focused area of self-study pretty much always. And the overlap of art and magic, just because I'm an artist, has been a focal point there. But it's very rich, that dialogue there.
2: If I wanted to know more, is there a certain text that you would point me to that could really give me sort of a general overlook?
0: Well, the psychic Bible is almost in practice, right? It's not a theoretical survey of the dialogue between art and the occult historically, but it's an excellent specimen of that combination for sure. If you read almost any book on surrealism, or the French decadence, or Marjorie Cameron, or Kenneth Anger, it's going to be difficult to avoid reference to the occult. They're just there, right? And then there's also a wave of theosophical artists such as Helmhoff, Clint, and Nasily Kandinsky. So it will always be mentioned in these surveys, even if it's just glossed over, it's there. There is a good book the author's name, I believe, is Nadia Koucha or Kucha. It's called Surrealism and the Occult. That is one of the few explicit mentions of these things. And then there's a recent book, actually, from the University of Chicago. What's great about it is that it's not written by an astrologer. It's written by an art historian. And it's called Influences. And what's great about that book is it talks about the crossover between astrology and renaissance painting and renaissance architecture and how inherent astrology was in the construction of these edifices and palazzos and whatnot you know they wouldn't let a shovel hit the ground to start building one of those palazzos until a certain planet was rising and usually it was the planet that ruled the ascendant of whatever prince was going to live there or whatever right and this continued into neoclassicism really Think about New York, right? How far can you really walk in New York without coming across a public zodiac somewhere? Astrological imagery, they're everywhere. And if you're in Italy, forget about it, right? There's going to be like the triumph of (laughs) Jupiter or whatever. It's going to be on some ceiling fresco everywhere.
2: Right, that's so true. And that just seems like it's such a glaring shame that academia can't embrace that very prevalent existence of how important it was throughout history. Before we go forth, what is your sun sign?
0: My sign is Cancer. Cancer.
2: Okay. And your moon and rising?
0: My moon is in Sagittarius and my rising is in Scorpio.
2: Okay. So you had the chance to look at my chart a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I am Taurus, sun, Taurus, moon, and Gemini rising. We would get along. We're compatible, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: If you've got so much Taurus, right, and I'm a Scorpio rising, that's my seventh house. That's the energy that is a something of my counterpart or my complement right that intensity and taboo of scorpio combining with the wholesomeness and agrarian gentle connection with nature that is taurus these things are gonna be rather harmonious and you're rising as gemini right
2: mm-hmm. which people always raise their eyebrows at
0: <laughs> why why would they raise their eyebrows at that
2: i feel like gemini is kind of the red-headed stepchild of astrology people really don't like gemini's they're
0: two-faced right Geminis are not two-faced. I think that's a misnomer and a generalization. Gemini is about data. Gemini is about information. It's about cleverness and quickness, and it's curious and hungry for information. It's curious for that dialogue between the twins, right? between thesis and antithesis, between... Two different polarities exchanging concepts back and forth now of course gemini is a mutable sign right so there has to be a termination of that eventually in all mythologies one of the twins has to go you know one of the twins has to die because if not we don't reach a definitive Conclusion. We don't reach a definitive idea. We can't kind of indefinitely balance thesis and antithesis. It won't work. But Gemini is a really curious sign. It wants data. It wants information. It's that like kind of film nerd trivia. Gemini Rising is journalism, right? And writing because it's (laughs) about that receiving and conveying of information. It can be a little spazzy. <laughs> you know,
2: I'm sure that's true of me.
0: <laughs> like wild and restless, but I wouldn't say that there's mm-hmm. anything inherently deceitful or duplicitous about Gemini.
2: Okay, well, that's good to know. I've heard, tell me if I'm wrong, but you are a bit of a man about town, and I've heard that you are one to give readings at art parties to various art world luminaries. Is that true?
0: I do not do readings at parties, <laughs> but I'm a professional astrologer. That's my job. I have a really broad ranging clientele, and since I have I suppose you would say a pedigree or a presence within the art world for a really long time. And those are kind of my people in a way. It really did grow from there. My practice really did grow from the installments of being in the art world and working with all kinds of people, not just artists, but all kinds of people within the art world.
2: If I were to walk into your living room right now with my chart, where would the conversation go from there?
0: Well, the conversation would start with what inspired you to be here? What inspired you to come? What questions might you have or what situations might be around in your life that around which you think astrology could be useful to you? How can I help you is usually how we begin. What kind of clarity do you need and information do you need or what kind of help do you need? right? What kind of pain are you going through? What kind of struggles are you facing that you would like to maybe mitigate some of those difficulties or optimize some of your advantages, really? Astrology is very broad-ranging and powerful, and it would begin that way. There's a strange stripping down that happens, I think, of personality when an astrological session is in progress, right? It's almost two individuals speaking to each other in a way that is Very intimate and very in depth and sometimes transcends the personality or transcends the social identity, right? The fact that someone would be an artist or not an artist maybe starts to kind of dissolve a little bit as things progress and we get to the core elements of the life and the core elements of the person. All of the energies alive within them. In some senses, everybody has some kind of creative impulse. The fifth house, for example, in somebody's chart is always going to represent what your creative contributions are. Do you make babies or do you make art? That's something of a maybe textbook connotation of what the fifth house in your chart really is. What kind of creativity, what is going to spring from your mind or be your offspring? This is the qualities of the fifth house. My main teacher, Austin Coppock, brought up a great Point once. He's like, the fifth house is your art studio. The 11th house is your art gallery because we all require social allegiances and alliances and friends in certain sectors of society in order to establish us or assist us in our social or professional position.
2: Right. Has there been anyone from the art world who's had a reading that really surprised you or something that really surprised them when they were talking to you? Like, what does that look like for somebody to get something back that they completely weren't expecting?
0: I've never really been surprised and neither I think are the client. Maybe they're surprised at times about how useful it can be, how much it can really give, how much it can really contribute to the life. I suppose artists are especially fun to work with in some way. So many people are artists. I mean, I have a lot of clients who are in Hollywood, right? Or who are in the fashion world or who are creative in all sorts of ways or not. Sometimes they're hedge fund people or whatever, you know, but basically... There's an inherent understanding sometimes when you're working with an artist of the power, say, of stones or metals or colors or certain external ephemera or substances that correspond with parts of the soul or correspond with parts of the life. It's almost returning to that inherent dialogue between art and occultism, how an artist's mind or really anybody with sensibilities towards the a hidden power or hidden life behind things like plants, stones, metals, etc. How they're able to adopt these things into their daily life, sometimes as remedies for trouble that they're having, or sometimes as a protein powder for things that they want to push forward and help them to succeed or help them to transcend. That's only one element that the artistic mind can vibe with pretty easily, I think.
2: Do you have anything to say to the astrological naysayers?
0: Well, first of all, My first response to that is I respect people who do not believe in astrology. There's no reason why they should. It makes no logical sense why it should work. However, you're doing astrology all the time. And I don't mean you personally are a puppet for these planetary forces. I don't mean that. What I mean is, is like, well, take a look at the calendar you use, the calendar we both use to schedule this meeting, right? Well, the year is dictated by The movement of the sun through the zodiac which obviously is the movement of the earth around the sun but to us we perceive it as the movement of the sun through the zodiacal belt so that's the way we measure our year we measure our months by the cycle of the moon around the zodiacal belt and there are 12 revolutions of the moon around the earth in one solar year and that's why there's 12 months in our calendar And then there's four chief phases in that moon cycle, the new moon, the waxing crescent, the full moon, the waning crescent. So there's about four weeks in our month. And there's seven days in those weeks, each applied to one of the seven visible planets. Sunday is the sun's day. Saturday is Saturn's day. Monday is moon day. Friday is Venus day or Viernes. Wednesday is Mercury's day or Miércoles. The reason why Monday comes after Sunday is because if you divide the day into 24 hours and attribute each of those hours to a planet going in the progressive order of the distance from those planets to the sun, right, starting at Saturn and ending at the moon, the 25th hour will belong to the moon on the sun's day. So that's why Monday comes after Sunday. And then The one holding the torch on the next sunrise will be Mars. So that's why Tuesday comes after Monday. Our whole society is designed around astrology. We're all using it anyways. So I'm like, why wouldn't you want to participate with something that you're already living by, right? right? And think about it, when the sun's in Scorpio, What's everybody doing? Well, they're dressing up like a sexy nurse and watching horror movies, right? Which is so Scorpio. And then the sun moves into Sagittarius and everybody's wearing tinsel and getting drunk at the Christmas party, right? Worshiping a guy in a big red suit because it's Sagittarius time.
2: I never thought about it like that, but that is genius.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Everybody's got their shirt off in the sun when the sun's in Leo, you know what I mean? Everybody's doing their selfie in the Bahamas and stuff like that. The baby Jesus is worshipped, or all infant gods are worshipped at the winter solstice because the sun is growing up. The days are becoming longer. The sun is maturing in terms of its diurnal domination of the daylight hours during the winter solstice. All of our Rights, all of our festivals even if they've only turned into hallmark commercial crap they're based on if not astrological symbolism at least astronomical phenomena.
2: on that note we're at the beginning of a new year do you have any predictions for what's in store for us
0: well yeah i mean saturn is moving out of the sign of aquarius and into the sign of pisces so First of all, Saturn will be weaker because Saturn is very, very strong in Aquarius. Aquarius is a sign of the water bearer where social norms are rejected for the austerities of solitude and innovation, right? Contribution to society and things like this, right? So we better get all our contributions to society out in the next three months or so, right? Because Saturn is going to move on. But then Saturn will move on to Pisces, and so the way that the imaginative mind works, the depths of the emotions, that emotional hygiene that Pisces people have, that sensitivity to the subtle that Pisces has will be solidified somehow, right, and concretized somehow. We might be able to give it form more easily when Saturn moves there. Jupiter is, you know, has moved into Aries and then is going into Taurus. So the way that we uh, establish ourselves in the world for these next few months, the way that we exercise our power in society and in the world can be elevated by Jupiter, right? It can be given meaning through myth, metaphor and abundance, right? Through feasting and wisdom of some kind, it can be elevated there beyond that Jupiter will be moving into Taurus which has been a difficult sign lately we've been having eclipses there right we've been having a square from Saturn and Aquarius so Taurus should uh, ease up a little bit and the way we do resources and uh, nutrition and uh, agriculture and stability financial stability and emotional stability and uh, wholesomeness and agrarian nature and stuff like that should be thriving in a way that we're going to be Pretty thirsty for at this point, you know, with all those eclipses and everything. And of course, I'm taking a positive spin as much as I can, right? I like to give people hope, right? And to give people a a way to elevate and progress and optimize good things. And of course, to avoid dangers for sure. Very important part of an astrological reading is letting people know when there's trouble. And what can be done to avoid that trouble or mitigate its ill effects or drive that energy or redirect that energy to something more fruitful and perhaps less painful.
2: Do you have any art shows coming up soon? What have you been working on with your own artistic output?
0: My artistic output has been focused very strongly on the fashioning of magical talismans, actually the making of art objects that are actually imbued with astrological force or magical power. And astrology is a key component of this, by the way. They have to be made at very specific times, fashioned from specific metals. A lot of them have to have rather specific images fashioned upon them. So it's been a practice that I've been very into now for the past few years. uh, Making lunar mansion talismans is where I sort of started my practice because the astrology a couple of years ago was not really conducive to planetary stuff. There's a great Arabic tradition of the lunar mansions, which is actually derived from the Indian nakshatras, which uses a lunar zodiac instead of a solar zodiac. Not instead of, but in addition to. And there's really evocative imagery with these mansions, and they need to be fashioned at very specific times, incorporating very specific images. But believe it or not, the Max Ernst technique of chopping things up and recombining them has been very useful to me in making these because sometimes you've only got 10 minutes to fashion this image. So you got to have the components ready and prepared. Whatever metal or stone that you're using, you got to have it ready. There's almost a pageantry or performance that goes along with a talismanic magic, too, because you must create an atmosphere that is visual in the room you must have certain smells or colors or symbols or offerings present, right? In order to invoke and enshrine the energy that you're looking to bring forth. So talismanic magic employs performance, it employs installation, employs visual, often it employs sound, and then it always manifests as an image, a visual object that is representative of the power that you are invoking. There's very few forms of magic that do not involve the fashioning of images, that do not involve a visual component in some way to make that magic effective. So again, the crossover between visual art and magic, to me, they're just inseparable. You have to employ artistic techniques in order to perform effective magic, really. How can I see them? That's tricky because they're sacred objects they have a magical power that is inherent in them. That's an interesting question. It's something I'm really working on. Like, How does one demonstrate or exhibit a magical talisman without... Uh, <laughs> the room would be full of power. That's one thing for sure. You'd want to be sure that they were contained somehow or deactivated somehow. My art practice has probably become very internal at this point because i'm not fashioning images to be demonstrated or displayed i'm fashioning images for their own sake and the power that they possess inherently so my work has kind of shifted a little bit that way as opposed to giving outward representation to a concept an idea or an internal alchemical process as my art used to do these days it's been much more focused on personal and private and unique elements of power. But I will keep thinking about that and working on it and devising some way to demonstrate magical talismans because they're beautiful and fantastic. I'd
2: love to see. Yeah. And be in the room and maybe if I could feel at least some of the power, if it's not too deactivated. If I wanted to have a bespoke conversation about my chart and what's going to happen, how do I book you?
0: It's funny so much of my practice is referral based that people tend to text me right they tend to get my number from somebody who's seen me before but I have a website mickypellerano.com and it'll give you my email address essentially to book a reading I'm also on Instagram mickypellerano on Instagram you can DM me on there it might be a little slower I'm available you can find me pretty easily
2: Thank you so much for coming on and this has been so informative and I'm so interested to learn more about your practice. So thank you so much.
1: No, thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Mallory, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week.